Hello, Fried fans, and welcome to Season 4 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Donovan, and my mission with Fried is to hashtag end burnout culture. On this pod, we end burnout culture by sharing stories of people who have been through it all, sharing expert tips from the best in the burnout field, sharing hashtag straight from Kate episodes with my own expertise and some fun research now that I'm a student again, plus sharing actionable steps to help you end burnout starting today. If you're feeling burnt out right now and you need personalized guidance, you can book a free breakthrough burnout call with me. You'll find the link bit.ly backslash call Kate in the show notes. Also, if you love fried and want to be part of our community, we'd love to have you. Just head over to Facebook and type in fried the burnout podcast discussion and click to join our group. It's a place for continued healing, deeper conversations and connections with people who just get it. And now for this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of season four fried the burnout podcast today i am really excited because we're finishing up finishing up a podcast exchange i was on the driven woman podcast a few months ago and now i have the host of the driven woman podcast diane winger with me today and she is a no bs therapist turned mindset and productivity coach for driven but distracted female entrepreneurs. Her specialty is helping gifted, creative ADHD brains get focused, fired up, and flame retardant. I love that so much. So they can make a living while making a difference. When Diane is not coaching or hosting the Driven Woman podcast, she can be found exploring her newly adopted city of Portland, Oregon with her rescue dogs and German husband. So it's another thing we have in common, Central European husbands alongside us. It's a thing, Diane. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be sharing space with you again. I just enjoy you so very much. And I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you. Likewise, I've been really looking forward to this one. We have a great time together. Yeah, we do. I, th- Diane's the kind of person that I want to go have a cocktail with you guys. Several <laughs> cocktails, probably. Probably. Because if, you know, it's like go big or go home, right? With that kind of gal. <laughs> so why don't you start out the way we start out these episodes, which is an introduction into your personal burnout story, because your life went through a big shift from one thing to the next. So why don't you tell tell everybody the scoop? Yeah, I think I finally realized I'm one of those people that tends to make broad sweeping changes, like just burn the boats and pretend that you never made them to begin with. So I'll say I've actually burned out more than once because, you know, I like mastery. So if you're going to do something, why not get good at it? I didn't see it as burnout at the time, but of course I see it now. And because I'm a fan of your work, I understand it more than I ever have before. So thank you to you for that. I would say the burnout story that I think is um, the most prominent for me is I had a very successful psychotherapy practice. I had crawled up the food chain in nonprofits and community mental health. I was the clinical director of a large agency with dozens of programs, a huge mental health budget. And uh, I decided I would leave that experience and start a private practice. Now, I didn't have any referral sources because when you come from nonprofit and then you are now for profit, there's nobody that can refer to you. So I just went at it like a beaver building a dam. And within a very short time, I was seeing up to 10 people a day, five days a week, and just humming along. And after five years of that, I realized that I was becoming impatient with my clients. I was tired of listening to stories that I thought were redundant and repetitive. And I literally wanted to stand up and say, haven't we been talking about this long enough? Don't you want to get on with it? And I thought, you you can't do this anymore. You are no good to anybody, including yourself. So I made the decision to close the therapy practice. And I didn't even try to sell it, Kate. I just wanted out. I announced it to all my clients. Some of them yelled at me. Some of them cried. Some of them got dramatic and said, I always knew it would end this way. I'm like, oh my God, get me the H out of here. So I wanted out so badly at that point that I literally sold everything in the office, the clock, the wall hangings, the furniture, even the couch that I loved so much because I never wanted to see any of it again. And I realized, you know, that's a clue. Um, I didn't even have a plan. 
for what I was going to do next, which is also obviously a sign of burnout. But I think one of the things I've learned from you, Kate, is that the emotion that I wasn't paying attention to and the one that ultimately propelled me out the door was resentment. I resented every, and here's the amazing thing about it. I didn't just resent my therapy clients who were, by the way, paying me and respecting me and allowing me the gift of holding space for their stories. I resented my husband, Mm -hmm. my kids, Mm -hmm. my dogs, my Mm -hmm. friends, my housework. I just literally wanted to get in a small boat and row to parts unknown. I didn't even care if I landed on an island or sunk in the sea. So I I would say if that doesn't describe burnout, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what does, right? Pretty complete. Yeah, really, really common things, right? I'm so glad that you brought up the resentment right away. Everybody knows on Fried, if you've been listening for a while, you know that resentment is my favorite emotion. So I love, I love when that comes up. It's so important. And this idea of disappearing and not caring what happens to me is a very common one. And sometimes it comes up as disappearing. Sometimes mm-hmm. it comes up as getting, you know, like a two week hospital stay, nothing too serious, not life threatening, but enough. Like that you psychiatric need. or medical? Usually people are thinking like when people are admitting to what their thoughts are, they're saying things like, I kind of just wish I would get into a car accident and break my leg. Mm-hmm. So not that a I would compound be a, fracture, a simple not a, fracture. Right, a simple that fracture well. that would heal well, but would require me yes. to be under someone else's care and require other people to care for me. Yes. Because I have I have literally I am negative in my ability to output and give to people right now. I'm negative. Yes. So I need to take in. And because I've been outputting for so long and I don't know how to take in, I think the only way that I can take in is if something in me is broken and people can't see mental breaking. So I want to make it physical. I want it to be bad enough so that people can see and there can be no question about the fact that I know I can't cook dinner. Like my leg is broken. Yeah, I can't stand in front of right. the stove or sink. Right. So right. yeah, yeah, it's like the only way we can give ourselves permission to opt out is to literally be physically damaged in a visible and unequivocal way. It's yes. like, oh yeah, she couldn't possibly. And you're like, right. Yeah, that's but how we draw boundaries. Mm, so true. Right. So that's a, those, both of those things are, are really common parts of your burnout story. So w- what happened next? What came next? Well, um, we are a two income household. So my husband was like, okay. And by the way, part of it, um, I left agency work because I was in a harassment situation Mm -hmm. for a year. I reported directly to the CEO and the CFO who were both incompetent and unethical. And since I'm neither, I was a huge threat and a real problem for them. So when I discovered evidence of fraud that involved my name because I was the chief clinical officer. So they had to put my name on all the government contracts. I was like, oh, hell. Um, But did I quit right away? No, I just got more and more and more impaired. So that was, that's kind of like what propelled me into private practice unprepared. right? Right. And then after five years of that, I was like, get me out. So I did not honestly, Kate, want to leave the field of helping people. I'm really good at it. And it does make my chili cook still. But I realized I needed to do it in a whole new way. I realized that while I thought I had impeccable boundaries, I did not. And when you come home and don't have anything left to give your loved ones because you gave it the office, you need to totally change your role. So What I realized is that I'd outgrown the role of therapist, Mm -hmm. but I was actually well-suited to the role of coach. Mm. However, I went through two years of training and certification uh, as a coach, um, the entry level and master level. And what I realized is that I was bringing a lot of my old habits with me, of course, (laughs) right? Like what else would I do? And that included taking too much responsibility for what my clients were and weren't doing. Okay, so my question my question there is does that tie back to the statement that you made a second ago where you said I thought I had impeccable boundaries but I realized I didn't. Yes, and I think because of like your concept of the knot which I am just like 
mad fangirling all over. I just love it so much. And it makes so much sense and resonates so beautifully with me. Um, what I realized is that I felt like it was my job to make sure that they made good use of everything I was teaching them and mm -hmm. training them on and, and inviting them to, to participate in. But that's so controlling and it's so manipulative on so mm -hmm. many levels. And I think that's why you and I hit it off so well is because I know you feel the same and that I realized I didn't want to experience rejection mm. by them. So I kind of formatted myself to what I thought was acceptable to them. And what I really needed was to say the things that needed to be said, the things that one of my favorite clients calls to me, the speaker of uncomfortable truths. Mm. And I love that so much because I realized I was not doing that enough as a therapist. I was not confronting things that needed to be confronted so that this person in pain could move forward. And it began a very long journey towards me eventually discovering the concept of rejection sensitivity. And I realized I was appropriating that. I didn't want to be rejected by my clients. I was taking responsibility for their results. So I was shaping the work I did with them according to what I thought they could tolerate. Would be safe. What, be, what would be safe. And what, honestly, I thought about it as what they could tolerate. Because mm. if I pushed them beyond what they could tolerate, they would be uncomfortable. They wouldn't like me and they'd leave. And then I couldn't help them anymore. Right, and which makes like, it unsafe. And, no, of unsafe. For, for actually, and I was making it unsafe for myself by taking, by deciding what was unsafe for them. Right. Without even asking them. It's like, yeah, yeah, I just, you're not even part of this. It's like, it's the Diane show. Like I got this whole thing going on between <laughs> us and you just need you to show up and sit across from me so I can yeah. do that. You know, When I started looking at my own shit and realized how arrogant it was, the stuff that burnt me out, I was like floored because I did it all from this space of wanting to be able to claim the title of good person, of generous person, mm -hmm. of helpful person. Yeah. And Give when her I really healer. Broke, yeah. Mm. And I when I looked at it, I was like, oh, you're kind of an arrogant jerk. Oops. <laughs> you're like, oh, I'm actually an asshole. Who knew? Yeah, like, oh. Uh. Wow. But I want people to, I want to stop for a second here and really talk about this because what you're describing, this boundary that you're describing as being off mm -hmm. is an internal boundary. Yes. And I, I, I know we talk about this pretty frequently on Fried, but I don't think it will ever be enough. I think we need to constantly remind people that most boundaries that you need to set are not the ones that you need to speak out loud to somebody else to say no, which is everything on Instagram will make you believe that if you just learn to say no, you'll have great boundaries. Uh-uh. Yeah. No way. You have to, in this situation, you are overstepping your own internal boundary based on a bunch of assumptions and you're not helping yourself or the person that you're quote unquote helping. And so these are really important to pay attention to. So I'm glad that that was the connection there for you, because it's something that no matter how often I talk about that, it is a question that I get, well, how do I find these internal boundaries? Again, look for resentment. You know what, let me let me go one one step deeper on this because yeah. I did mention earlier that I I had the opinion of myself yeah. that I had impeccable boundaries. Right. And by that I meant I don't I didn't give my therapy clients my personal phone number. I didn't take emergency calls. I'm not, I don't do crisis intervention. If you're suicidal, you need to call 911. Don't call me. And I, you know, my informed consent and everything was, you know, your professional um, boundaries were my professional boundaries, standard of care, you know, best practice, you know, evidence-based, all of that. Yeah. And I also thought, you know, being very clear about expectations and goals mm -hmm. that we should mm -hmm. be working towards outcomes, not just insight and self-awareness. So I thought I'm doing it. And, and frankly, many therapists and healers of all types have piss poor boundaries, mm -hmm. even on that level. So yes. I thought, oh, you are rocking this shit. <laughs> but the but the internal and I make fun of it now, uh, I because I see it so clearly now. And I think it's important. And I like you use humor to disarm yeah. the 
defensiveness and denial that I can so easily slip back into. Mm -hmm. So I will make fun of myself and others and say, yeah, I was really kind of an asshole. And Harry was thinking, you know, I'm this generous healer. So what I realized about the internal boundary, Kate, was that it was the feeling of responsibility. Mm. And one woman I remember in particular told me, I don't think this is helping. And I thought, in my impression, she was moving right along, getting better, getting stronger, getting more confident. And I said, please tell me why. And she said, well, I kind of feel like when I come to see you, while I'm here with you, you're able to make me see myself in a way that I really, the person I would love to be. And I get inspired and I get motivated and I think, wow, that's exactly how I want to feel and, and how I want to be in my life. And then I walk out the door and it's like I went to see a movie and then the credits came up and and everybody got out of their seats and picked up their half-eaten bags of popcorn and walked out the door and thought, oh, that was so nice. And I was devastated. <laughs> And this word devastated will come up again in this conversation. Yeah. It's an important one. But I thought, oh, my God, I'm failing her mm. because it's not transferring outside the room. Now, why was I taking all that responsibility? And why did I literally want to go face plant on the couch and cancel all my clients for the rest of the day because I felt like a piece of shit who couldn't help anybody? Mm -hmm. Um that was a that was a big clue and now this is such a beautiful segue into an area of expertise that you hold that i've been i was going to say dying to listen to but obviously i listened to your podcast on it before we got on this call because <laughs> but i think everybody needs to hear so the rest of our conversation today is going to be centered around being sensitive to rejection and this is what this hit on for you Oh that my if, goodness. Right. So I just jump in, just jump yeah. right in. So I have been speaking a lot and writing a lot and just finding myself increasingly called to teach and lead on this topic because there's like so many things I deal with full of myth, misunderstanding, and frankly, ignorance. So lately, because a lot of the clients I work with are diagnosed or undiagnosed, self-diagnosed with ADHD, I'd say they have ADHD traits. I don't really care if they have the official diagnosis or not. Um, they have started saying, oh, you know, I actually think I have RSD. And I started seeing all this stuff on social media. I had such a bad attack of my RSD today, or my RSD is so bad in this job, I think I have to quit and do something else. And because I don't really like to get into those threads and you know go down that rabbit hole, but I did start noticing, why is everybody suddenly talking about this? So I started doing some research. And let me just give you the backdrop of RSD, which is what people are calling, um, stands for rejection sensitive dysphoria. Now, what does this mean? It means that um, there is an extreme emotional reactivity and, and pain that's triggered by the perception of rejection, criticism, exclusion, teasing, a sense of falling short of your own or others' expectations, and negative self-talk. So if somebody- My body just shrank 10 sizes. <laughs> Good, you can give away all those big shoes now and just <laughs> pat around barefoot like a toddler. <laughs> um, the symptoms are emotional outbursts that are disproportionate to the offense, often followed by withdrawal, negative self-talk, decreased self-esteem, ruminating about what happened, and then becoming increasingly easily triggered and defensive, which of course troubles all of your relationships. And what I've also noticed is that people who identify with RSD um, tend to use word choices like devastating and mm. catastrophic, very emotionally laden terminology. 
And you, as we get into this more, it'll be very clear that a lot of people who struggle with rejection sensitivity have been labeled drama queens, borderlines, bipolar, um, and all sorts of other pathological labels. But speaking of pathological labels, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD, is not in the psychiatric manual. It is not a clinical diagnosis. It is a description of a certain type of emotional dysregulation that many people with ADHD have, and many other people have as well. I mean, I'm sure you can think of all kinds of people. Empaths, oh, it sounds like a tra just a trauma response. Not exactly. And I think this is why it's confusing and there's a lot of mythology. Of yeah. course, people who have a trauma history, have a trauma background, they will experience all of these things too. Mm -hmm. And people who are actually a borderline personality experience these two, as do many people who are bipolar. So that's why there's a lot of confusion. The difference is when it's actually rejection sensitive dysphoria, it is instantaneous after the perceived incident, tends to be short-lived. There's a very clear trigger and then they go back to their baseline functioning. What's also true about it is that William Dodson, MD, who is a psychiatrist, he is considered one of the best known figures uh, in the ADHD mental health community. He is the one who coined the phrase and says that it is not responsive to cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. I'd like to expand on the topic as we get further into this dialogue, because I don't believe that. I mean, he is a psychiatrist and you and I both know. They want to prescribe medica medication. Precisely. I mean, many, many years ago, psychiatrists did talk therapy. Yeah, But now they tend to be pill pushers, and I have no disregard or disrespect for Dr. Dodson or his body of work. However, I disagree that um, rejection-sensitive dysphoria is something that needs to be medically treated. It tends to be treated with clonidine. Like, what if you don't want to take medication? And yeah. I think it also excludes the fact that creatives, empaths, intuitives, Enneagram nines, most healers and helpers, and the majority of entrepreneurs also experience rejection sensitivity on some level, as do queer people and marginalized community. I mean, I, mean, I have a question. I'm going to interrupt you for everybody. a second. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, like, is there anybody that doesn't experience that? Like, are we not all sensitive to being rejected? I mean, that's coded into our DNA. We are meant to be part of a community. So Truth. when somebody says, you know, I, I disregard you in some way, shape or form, whether like you said, like you've been, you've made a clear point that this is a perceived, perceived, perceived situation. Mm -hmm. So not that might not always be the intention behind the words. It might not always even match the words at all, but you feel like that that's what's true. I mean, I don't know anybody that doesn't sort of go down that road sometimes. And it sounds to me like this could even just be a simple part of burnout because when you don't have the ability to manage your emotional regulate, like to, to manage your emotions, so you can't regulate your emotions at all, right. you're going to have an immediate extreme response that's not proportionate to the situation. It's like a hand. tripwire. Yeah. 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 So you're right, Kate. My, my, philosophy about this and the reason why I'm speaking about it so much is first of all, I think we are pathologizing a normal thing, a normal mm -hmm. human experience. And frankly, I studied the DSM for years. I was a licensed therapist for two decades and I was licensed to diagnose and treat mental disorders. I no longer choose to do so. I have retired my license for many reasons, not just the burnout story I shared with you. I do not think it serves most humans to have a stigmatizing label. Mm. And what I often find is that many people claim it, cling to it, and embrace it as an identity because it explains things, but it also can provide a place of safety and acceptance with others 
who also claim that identity. And while I think it's very important to say, <clears throat> this, is my, this is my felt experience, this is my reality, I think once it becomes your identity, it is a trap and it will be your destination. You won't grow beyond it because even just saying I'm having an RSD flare up or an RSD attack, there's no such thing. Right. I also because don't it's not a diagnosis. Yeah. It's not a diagnosis. And I think, don't we have enough diagnostic labels already? that are pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable. I mean, the DSM and grief makes me lose my mind. Right? Like the why rules, we, the, the rules around to, how long you can grieve according right. to the DSM make me want to punch people in the throat. <laughs> why do we have to pathologize? Normal human experience. Normal human experience. I mean, and the truth is, you know, I work with entrepreneurs. Yeah. And if you are going to make any money and not just have an expensive hobby. You're going to put yourself you, out there and you're going to get rejected. Bingo. And it's not just perceived. You're you, literally getting rejected. Exactly. And, and you're you getting told to... that your prices are too high or you're yes. getting told. Yeah. I mean, you just add to the, you know, the shitty committee in your head that's saying, who are you? <laughs> the shitty who are you to do this, right? Who are you to do? Who are you? And, you know, I mean, I, ha I got so much hate when I left the therapy community. Yeah. They felt like I had crossed over to the dark side. Yeah, because why coaching is unregulated and la, la, la. Right, like, why would you do that? Or even why, why would you charge so much? And why don't you have a sliding fee? I mean, all of this. So yeah. there's no end to the opportunities to experience criticism, to go yeah. down the shame spiral and feel like a flaming asshole. I can call myself an asshole, but if you call me an asshole, there's <laughs> yeah. going to be a problem. I'm just well, going to be think, face down. Yeah. Becoming an entrepreneur is really uh, quite similar, not in necessarily responsibility level, but in um, other people's opinion level uh, as becoming a mother. As soon as you say you have a business, everybody's got an idea. As soon as you say you're pregnant, people are like, are you eating sushi? Did, should you have that, Brie? Oh, is, does that have alcohol in it you know like relax get away from me I can make my own decisions it's one of those things that um, everybody feels free to comment on so being an entrepreneur you're just constantly being tossed into the sea of other people's ideas about how and why you should do things but chances are you chose to be an entrepreneur because you didn't like the way things were being done and you wanted them to be done differently like, ding 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 yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there, well, you asked if there's anybody that doesn't experience, and I, I don't like to call it rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yeah. Even when I'm talking to someone with ADHD who identifies with right. this experience, I try to neutralize it by saying rejection sensitivity because the dysphoria part, right. that's what makes it pathological. That's, that's a clinical term. Rejection right. Activity, who doesn't identify with that? Now, right. how, how do we deal with it? Mm. Do we deal with it? Um, if we don't deal with it, people are going to be coming to somebody like you for burnout. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? I've already said, I don't believe that medication is the answer. Not that I'm married to a physician. So I understand that medication saves lives and relieves suffering and does things that many people need done. And if people want to take medication, they can. But in my experience, most people resent the medication that helps them yeah. because of what they make it mean. For example, um, there's something wrong with my brain and I need drugs to function. Ah. That is a story that many people tell themselves or I can't face life without medication. I take medication for different things. And I just think I'm grateful that I have health insurance mm -hmm. and it covers most of the cost of this because this, this thing right here in my hand, in my mouth, in my body, it's a tool mm -hmm. that makes my life healthier, easier, more manageable, less painful. Makes my relationships better. Yeah. Like, but I'm not keen on all the over-prescribing of psychotropic medications, particularly to women. I don't know if you're aware, you probably are. Something like 40% of women over 40 are taking an antidepressant in this country. Mm -hmm. What's the actual right fuck? Now, actually. Huh? It's higher? I think it's gone up this year, yeah. 
yeah, as yeah. a result of COVID. Like, yep. how can that be normal? And if you add how in anti-anxieties, okay? yeah, if you add in anti-anxieties at the same time, I think it goes up to 73%. We're talking about three quarters of us being medicated all the time. Insane. And so, and we think it's us, <laughs> like when everybody has to be medicated to function in the society, it's the society. It's not, it's not us. <laughs> correct. Correct. And so you asked me, what, what do we do about it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think I believe knowledge is power. Oh. I believe acceptance is freeing. So when we recognize, I experience this. I experience this on a regular basis. I experience this so frequently and with such intensity that it makes me question whether I should be doing this, whatever it is. This may be being an entrepreneur, being on social media, having to market my business, having to ask for a sale. Like there are many solutions. If you are at the level of entrepreneurship where you can actually hire someone to do your marketing, and close sales for you, and you just then receive the customer who has already been marketed to and sold, and now you can serve them, wouldn't that be a beautiful solution? But if you are not at that level of entrepreneurship and you need to do your own marketing sales, you have to first respect the fact that this is your sensitivity. Sensitivity is a beautiful thing because most of the people that I've worked with who have a trauma background, either remain so sensitive that daily life is intolerable and they retreat into a shell of a person, or they become so profoundly desensitized that nothing really brings them joy or heartache. They're mm. just fucking numb. Mm. So I neither one of those is an acceptable outcome for me. So I like to think of like on a spectrum how sensitive are you? What types of situations, circumstances, and people trigger you? Can they be cut out? Can you avoid them? Many of us have people who trigger us in our personal lives. And because it dysregulates us so much, we then take that weakened self into our business and try to work from that place. So I, I have eliminated people from my life. I had not seen my adoptive mother for a year when she died. No, I hadn't talked to her for a year when she died. I had not seen her for 10 years. Sometimes the person that is constantly criticizing you and uh, making you feel rejected, they can be eliminated. It's a tough choice to make and, and probably requires some therapy to get to that point, but it is an option. You can also... Um, identify what specific environments. I've had clients in the past who could not recover from constant anxiety due to rejection sensitivity until they got Instagram off their phone. Right. Just eliminate because other apps for some reason didn't trigger them as much. Right. So, so instead of making like a broad sweeping generalization, like this is my problem, get specific about where this problem is showing up. And the more specific you get, the easier it is for you to come up with some sort of solution that will allow you to circumvent as much as possible in as many situations as possible, the situation. You know, if you think about some of the most sensitive and reactive to criticism personalities on the planet, actresses, I've worked yeah. with some A-list actresses when I still lived in LA, and many of them never read their reviews. They have someone read them right. for them and only show them the best. Yeah. Because you cannot be in that business and take in that criticism. So kind of know, like, is this an issue for you? what is your level of it? Some people it's so profound and others it's more manageable. I think when we approach any problem in our life in a mindful way, which is open, curious, and non-judgmental, just like you're doing research on yourself. It's like, this is really fascinating that this experience happens. I'm a successful person in life, so it hasn't stopped me, but there are places where it's holding me back. Can this be eliminated? Can it be diminished in some way? Can I, for example, if you find that spending too much time on social media is intensifying this, set a freaking timer on your phone. Yeah. Go on for 10 minutes and get the H out of there. Yeah. Um, I also think that I do 
find cognitive strategies helpful. And they usually need to be combined with some sort of somatic work, mm -hmm. breathing, biofeedback, acupuncture, even massage. Yeah. Because a lot of people who experience rejection sensitivity carry a lot more tension in their bodies, no surprise to you. And so being able to offload that actually helps them have more tolerance and reduces the uh, increases the threshold of sensitivity. So it takes more criticism to trigger them. The goal is yeah. not to be have a thick skin because I don't believe in that anyway. I don't either. I think when someone has a thick skin, they're either in denial, mm -hmm. it's a trauma response, mm -hmm. or, you know, it, it's like a suit of armor. When someone spends a lot of time telling me they, they don't give any fucks about what other people think, I don't believe them. No, I don't I either. think that's a posture. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a mask that we put on. So one of the things that I'm noticing now is that there's most of the things that we just talked about that you just shared are things that we can do to prevent ourselves from being in that situation as often as possible. So what do we do to re-regulate if, if that situation already happened and we're stuck in this emotional response? Because there's what, prevention is one thing, but just like you know, burnout has prevention and recovery, very different things. This also has two separate sides. So prevention is one thing. Cool, we can look, we can niche down, we can find, we can pick apart the situations, we can create systems that are better for us but what do we do when it happens yeah when you're in because it's gonna happen of course it's gonna happen yeah. like somebody's no. gonna take your parking spot and you're gonna think that that means that they don't think you're good enough to get it you know like you will not believe that is exactly what i was just thinking of <laughs> like that that image just came to my mind like you're I pulling did meditate little... before we got on we got on <laughs> well it just turns out that this whole psychic friends hotline thing works over the uh <laughs> over the zoom waves so it's going to happen. And I yeah. think, you know, one of the ways that I work with myself to prevent future burnouts is being much more realistic about my expectations. Mm -hmm. It turns out I have very grandiose expectations. <laughs> it's part of the whole, whole asshole complex <laughs> that I'm in a state of recovery from recovering from perfectionism, arrogance, and grossly unrealistic expectations of self and others. So I say it's going to happen. You can't prevent it. And, and the truth is, I don't want to prevent things like this from happening because knowing that things can happen, I can respond to them in the moment. Is the bounce back ability factor. Resiliency mm -hmm. is my other R word. Resentment to the left, resiliency to the right. Mm -hmm. Like I am a huge fan of developing resiliency because when we do, we create trust. Yeah. with ourself self -trust. and confidence, yeah. right? I think that's so important. So the techniques that I like and use the most are ones that you don't need to have anything with you, like a pill you can pop or, you know, a, a bodyguard that can squirrel you away. I actually like some of the energy, uh, they used to be called energy medicine or energy psychology techniques, the cook's hookup. Um, is one that I like where you, do you know that one? No. Okay. We'll probably want to have a link to it in the show notes. It's okay. a little bit too complicated to describe uh, on a podcast because you need a visual to see it. But what it fundamentally does is joins together multiple techniques from the acupuncture world without needles, from breathing, from yoga, from and it takes 90 seconds. I used to use it in my therapy office when couples would come in and I could see by their red faces and veins standing out on their necks that they had had a huge fight on the way to my office. There was no way any productive therapy was going to happen with that start. So we would start sessions with it. And I would use this anytime something really emotional came up, but it basically you're, you're working with both sides of your brain by working with two sides of your body. It looks a little funny. It feels a little funny, but it works every time and it only takes 90 seconds. So I will send you some information on cool. that. I also like tapping yeah, um, because it, it's distracting. It creates an alternative focus and you are actually doing something that is known physiologically to bring your levels down. And if neither one of those is acceptable because they're too woo woo or you know, your mind goes blank and you can't think of them, get physical. 
Yeah. Literally jumping jacks, push-ups, sit-ups, run up and down the stairs. Dance, shake it out. You know, just literally moving your body. It's astounding how much that can do to take you out of that fight or flight panic freeze, whatever mode you go into. And it doesn't always stop you from going into the dysphoria because you know that the brain learns things very quickly. And once it's grabbed onto a habit, this is how that wiring is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, It's going to take a little time to unwire it, but even just going into a crazy dance party for two minutes can like abort the mission of being hijacked by rejection sensitivity so that you can start using some other techniques to bring you the rest of the way down. Yeah. I like that. And I think that it's one of the things that really helped me over time is, um, I don't always rely on mindset work because I think that oftentimes we're forgetting about the body and I've done too much work energetically with people's bodies to think that it's not important, but there, there are some mindset tricks that I think are useful and some of them are just perspective. So I had over the course of, I had like a 10 day stretch where I had six sales calls which is a lot for me in 10 days. I I only Mm. take two to three clients a month. So Mm. six sales calls is is a significant number. I I usually have one or two a week over the course of the whole month. So that's six to eight a month. And I Mm. had, you know, I had six in, in under 10 days. And my husband has been in sales for a long time. And he was like, well, if you sell, if you close over 20%, you're golden. Mm-hmm. And when I stopped thinking that six calls you needs to go to be six clients, mm. that changed the rejection for me. And so those six calls, I don't offer coaching to everybody because I don't always think it's the right answer. So over those six calls, I had one person that said that this was not the time for them, which was totally fine. And I had another person that I didn't offer coaching to because I was like, you're beyond me already. Like you've, you've already done the work that I would do with you. I, I can suggest that a next level but I think that you're already kind of on the road, right? So that left four people, right? So so really, according to this, if I sign one of those people, like we're golden. And I'm so I'm that, glad you're bringing this up because it is, you know, even if you're not a person who has really profound rejection sensitivity, if you are an entrepreneur, if you're self-employed, yeah. if you need to enroll people, Right. In your coaching, consulting, whatever your programs or services are, even if you have a nice setup to screen people out before they get on your calendar, the reality is you will not close everybody. No. And nor should you. I think my process is almost identical to yours yeah. with the same results because, right. and what I tell the person is, the outcome of this consultation is for you and I to both feel either hell yeah or hell no. Yeah. The outcome is not, let me think about it. You do not need to think about it. What you need to know is, am I the right person for the right reason at the right time? And by the way, I'm not trying to sell you. You and I are deciding on each other. Yeah. If I decide you're not ready or you're not right, or I'm not right, I will not invite you to be a client. Right. And even if you beg me, that, so no, that yeah, takes no. the, it's like, no, the, you're not ready or I'm not the right person for yes. you, or I don't feel this is a good fit or right. whatever it is. Um, but it takes the rejection sensitivity out on my end. Yes. And then I can be clear and unequivocal without trying to trigger the other person. Sometimes they do. Of course. But I, I'm not they're not my client at that moment. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't need to take responsibility for their rejection. Yeah. And I think the other thing, the other story that comes to mind, that's a good like kind of perspective shift is there was um, a woman who in the early twenties was a B level, a B level actress in Hollywood. And she, you know, got jobs sometimes and didn't other times, but their sort of percentage was nine to one, like nine no's to one yes. So what they used to do was collect no's, right? They'd make a pile of their no's and look at them and say, well, the more no's I get, the closer I am to a yes. That it's, it becomes part of the game. It becomes part of the process. And I think that if, if you don't have a really severe 
sensitivity to rejection. If you're sort of, you know, if that sensitivity is, is between a five and a six, instead of a 10 or 11, this might be a way to help you like just start collecting them, collect the nose because statistically somebody's bound to say yes. Actually, this is a technique that they use in sales training in many mm. industries. And in some industries, if it's like a high end kind of sale, like timeshares in yeah. Puerto Vallarta, it's probably a hundred no's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why would someone put themselves through that? Well, if you have extreme rejection sensitivity, that would probably- That's not your best job. Living nightmare. But for a person who's like, I would find that exciting and exhilarating yeah. to challenge myself in that way. You don't have to go all the way to that extreme, but no. it doesn't mean anything about you. Right when someone doesn't like your stuff or doesn't need your stuff right now or you know whatever it happens to be so that's when i started doing bigger speaking events and people started getting accustomed to we're doing it's different pricing now in covid and things are you know off and i had some people say oh you're you know you're a little out of my league and i said okay but 3 years ago 4 years ago when i was not recovered from burnout I would have been like, oh, I'll reduce my price. I just want, I need you to like me. And now I'm like, okay, I'll collect that now. One step closer to a yes. And it also shows evidence of your own growth in willingness to tolerate rejection and a mindset shift where you don't have to make it mean there's anything wrong with you your pricing, your offer, like, it's okay if somebody says no. And yeah. I think, honestly, when we were talking earlier about um, preventing, I think sometimes just really being aware of where you are biologically at any given time, if you are premenstrual, you're going to be more sensitive. If you didn't if sleep you, well. Exactly. You didn't have enough water. Enough sleep, your blood dehydrated. sugar is up and down. <laughs> right. You got to do what I call the Terminator scan. It's like do your bio check, you know, yeah. of all of your systems like the Terminator guy did. And it's like, oh, she's low on this, 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 this. Because anytime you're off biologically, neurologically, or in any other body-based system, you're going to be more sensitive. It's yeah. part of how the, the design of the whole system works beautifully to let us know this is a time when you need to do this instead of this. And now we have technology that sometimes tells us stuff like that. You know, my husband has one of those Garmin watches, like the real fancy ones. And he wakes up in the morning. He's like, I have a 97% body battery. And then we row for an hour and a half. And he's like, I lost 30% of my body battery. My watch is telling me that I should relax for the rest of the day. <laughs> Can I just tell you when it comes to that stuff, this is my new best friend. This is a hydrate bottle. And it tells me when I need to drink more because I always do because it's got a sensor at the bottom <laughs> and it flashes when I haven't picked it up recently. Isn't so I can still ignore the flashing, but I'm much less likely to because I spent $65 on this freaking <laughs> bottle. And then I would really feel like a dumbass. So, you know. Then your shitty committee would get real loud. That, that just give them more material to work from, right? <laughs> Oh, I do enjoy you. Same. I love this. And I think that it's going to, or maybe I'll use I statements. <laughs> You're not going to speak for me? <laughs> I'm not going to speak for you or any of my listeners. I'm going to let them have their own experience. Mm. I feel relieved after this conversation. I feel lighter. Already oh, hey. just having the conversation. First of all, I enjoy spending time with you. But second of all, dissecting this idea, eliminating this, I, the, the, the part of it that makes it pathological. Hate that. And knowing that there are so many things that can be done on a preventative and recovery scale. And just knowing most of all that it's, normal human experience. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to start using NHE all over the place. Like I, this is a conversation Hashtag I have with clients. Yeah, yeah. Every day. Like they're like, yeah, but I'm being ridiculous. I'm like, 
No, no your cat just human. died. Your husband left you. You got into a car accident and you lost your business. Like this is how you're supposed to be reacting. One of the things I find myself saying to my clients all the time is when they start to go off on a diatribe about how ridiculous they are, yeah. how stupid they are, how whatever it is. Yeah. I say, of course, of course you did that. Of course you felt that way. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. How else would you feel? Yeah. And they're like, really? Yeah. I just think that, you know, I, years ago, I used to do neurofeedback. It was part of my therapy mm. practice because a lot of people didn't want to take psychotropic meds and they were looking for alternatives. So I trained in neurofeedback and did that for about five years. And one of the first assessments I would do before the neurofeedback was an assessment of sensitivity, mm. reactivity, mm. and hardiness. Mm. I continue to think about those three assessments to this day because human beings vary in their degree of sensitivity, obviously. They vary in how reactive they are once their threshold of sensitivity has been triggered. And their hardiness is how long does it take for them to come back to baseline? I think this is something that if we started teaching kids about and stopped shaming mm. the kid and bullying the kid who is more sensitive, who may be more reactive, and who takes a little bit longer to get their hurt feelings back in order, instead of stigmatizing and, and alienating them, the sensitive people in the human tribe have always been the ones who are the most creative and have the most unique solutions to common human problems. But if we shame their sensitivity, they will go into hiding and we will never know what they have to offer the world. Well, I think that is quite possibly the best statement to end a podcast ever. Mic drop. Mic drop. Thank you so much for being here today. I always appreciate your knowledge and your energy and your wisdom and your presence. I would hang out with you anytime. I would even get in the row, row, row your boat with you, but you're too far <laughs> away, so it'll have to wait. Well, it could happen. You never know. You never know. Thank you so much. All right, Fried fans, we're wrapping up an excellent, excellent episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast, and I want to know what you think about it. So if you'd like to join the Fried the Burnout Podcast discussion group on Facebook, we would love to have you there. We are already over 100 members, and we're having great conversations every single day going in deeper to the topics that we're talking about on the podcast. So you don't have to listen to this podcast and then feel like you're alone with your thoughts. Don't be alone with your thoughts. Come join us. We're a really lovely group. I'll see you there. Until next time.